and welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. Now we're going deep into the iceberg, like it's so deep that it's only me and a submersible behind me. And in this layers, we're talking about our last two parts, eight and part nine. And in this one, we're talking about heterodox economics. Heterodox economics are basically economic theories and philosophies that do not really fit in the mainstream frameworks of economics, which are neoclassicalism, monetarism, or um, Keynesianism. Some would argue that Austrian economics and Marxism are should be considered the fringes of mainstream or the most acceptable forms of heterodox economics. However, since I really talked about both of those in higher tiers of the iceberg, we're going to go to some of the more crazy theories. The first one of these we're going to talk about is Buddhist economics. Uh, Buddhist economics is really the idea of applying the principles of Buddhism to economic thought. Um, they have a whole, quite a bit of differences between traditional economic thought and Buddhist economic thought. Uh, one is that Buddhist economists care about the stages after the consumption of a product and how those affect the society and the environment versus just the purchasing decision, which is the dominant uh, framework of traditional economics. Also, traditional economics concentrates on self-interest and rational uh, decision-making as the guidance for economics, whereas in Buddhist economics, they don't really believe in the idea of an I or a mine and that humans need to detach from that theory. And um, they believe that self-interest based economic approaches will ultimately fail in the long run. So building models based off of those are not effective. It's also why they really don't prioritize things such as profits or the concept of desire and marginal utility. Uh, they think that the goals also for markets is not to maximize uh, product saturation and uh, gross national product, but instead to minimize violence because without markets, people used to just take things from force. So they're kind of a, a necessary evil in Buddhist economics. Uh, and similar to happiness economics, we're going to be talking about in a, later in this iceberg, they don't like to measure economic success on gross national product or GDP, but instead on gross national happiness. Uh, that's kind of really it. It's just trying to integrate a Buddhist religious framework with modern economics. The next one I'm going to talk about is institutionalist political economy, which is probably among these the iceberg that I could probably get behind the most here in this section. It's the idea that historical and sociopolitical factors drive the economy versus just pure market decisions. And I think this was more true in ancient history and medieval and Renaissance history when the state was a much larger actor in the economy and one of the few bigger forces in the economy when also wars were more prevalent because you can have the greatest business out there, but if it, your, all of your property and equipment get destroyed, 
by a bomb in a war that's going to change the way that economic structure is involved. So I think that the idea of institutionalist political economy and about how political decision-making um, shapes socioeconomic practices and then creates a feedback loop where the politics drive the economic um, decisions, which therefore drive the politics and it creates this cycle. And it kind of, the way I deviate from the main thinkers of this group, which are uh, economists such as Tom Forstein, Velvin, John Commons, Wesley Mitchell, and John Dewey, is that I think a lot of economic ideologies and economic schools of thought are basically quantified rationales for a specific economic policy goal, which I've talked about in my video, Macroeconomics is Political, which I'll have a link to in this description. The next one I'm going to talk about is feminist economics. Feminist economics is really the idea that traditional economics doesn't really factor in um, gender-aware issues um, and about how the difference in the way that women and men navigate their lives affects economic outcomes and distributions of assets and wealth and economic opportunities and other things like that. They're very in a lot of the more mainstream feminist economics, economists for lack of a better term, um, really uh, want to have some sort of measurement of gender empowerment called the gender empowerment measure to see how um, barely women are treated in the broader economy. Uh, they also call attention to like a lot of social constructs um, and expectations for men and women and how that affects decision-making and economic decisions, mostly on the micro level, but also occasionally will branch into macroeconomics. And um, feminist economics prioritizes the goal of enhancing the well-being of children, women, and men in local, national, and transnational communities over just maximizing just the overall total output of an economy. Um, they just also think that, again, utility, the utility function is so much different between the genders that you cannot use like measuring utility as a marginal utility as a way to determine um, economic decisions. And um, they also think that Traditional economics believe that the heads of households will act in an altruistic way for the benefit of the family as a whole, even though they think that might not be true. Ironically, the most feminist economist that I was familiar with before I even understood this concept, and I don't think he would call himself this, is actually Aaron Clary. He's not like necessarily a feminist economist in the sense that he believes in the political ideology of feminism. But a lot of his economic philosophies and ideas revolve around gender dynamics and how gender dynamics influence economic decision-making. Uh, the most famous one of these, at least the one I found the most interesting and unique, was the idea of coma, uh, which is the, it's the idea that a wealthy man would sponsor his spouse's business, even if it doesn't make a profit, simply to just give her something to do. Uh, there isn't really economic studies to confirm the prevalence of coma, but if you see a lot of knickknack shops in 
wealthy and touristy areas that in a normal economy would have no idea of making a profit and then just disappear in a few years, that might be coma in action. So that's my um, kind of unconventional take on who's the leader of feminist economics in an unintentional way. Uh, the next one is this idea called Freiwirtschaft. Uh, my Swiss German is fairly poor, despite my heritage. But this philosophy really centers among three terms that start with the letter F, free geld, which is free money, as all money is issued by a limited period of constant value. So there's no inflation or deflation, just money supply will just perfectly match whatever the circulation is needed. And long-term savings, if you want to get a real return, requires investments in bonds or stocks. Nobody should be able to get a positive real return by just holding their money in the bank. The second one is free land, which is all land should be commonly owned um, and or else public institutions should be the only one who can um, rent property. Like there should not be private landlords. It's kind of similar to Georgism. However, except it's a even it's more anti-private property version of Georgism. And the last one is Freihandel or free trade, where there should be unrestrained free trade and there should be effectively a um, a global single currency to replace the gold standard, which was the dominant way of trade back when their concepts came. The main thing that they contribute to economics is their criticism of the monetary system. And their idea is that prices do not accurately convey information. Uh, in classical economics, the price is a signal to show how scarce something is relative to something else. Whereas Freigold economics believe that um, prices really have no signaling impact. And it could just be a... Um, just a derivative of random information flows. And if you do see prices move, it's a product of a destabilizing currency. Uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the gift economy. Uh, the gift economy is the idea of an economic system where valuables are not sold or purchased. And the way that people do things and get things done or exchange items really is they have to be all through voluntary gift giving. Um, there could be an expectation of reciprocity. Like if I gave my friend like a copy of my book, he could give me a ham sandwich or whatever, but not like in a purely like business sense, like a barter economy where it's like a straight trade. It's no thing. If you know somebody who needs something that you produce, you give it to them. And when they know that they need the thing that you produce, they'll just give it to you. And everybody just works on just maximizing their um, product of whatever their skills and value they provide to the world. And then people will just give them stuff that they need and cannot do themselves. It's kind of like a global Patreon system where instead of Patreon is used for YouTubers, um, and other content creators, you use Patreon to sponsor your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, your uh, car manufacturers, your landlord, uh, etc. And then in return, they will be a patron to you. 
in that way. And instead of money, you just exchange whatever the product or service you offer to the people. I just think that this is overly idealistic. I would never work in the real world. Okay, so next we're going to be talking about a socioeconomics, and it's about how social trends impact economic activity. And it's kind of the reverse of my theory on this very subject, which I'm going to talk about in part nine, where it's saying that social norms and social values are what dictate economic decisions and changes in those are what dictate the changes in the economy. So let's just say for an example in their model would be that uh, say it becomes more socially acceptable for two non-related families to share the same house. So like you have two sets of parents and two sets of kids living in a six bedroom house instead of each of them having a three bedroom house. Or maybe this to be more economically efficient, maybe they would say share a five-bedroom house instead. And so if that just becomes more trendy, then as a result, there'll be less demand for smaller houses and more demand for bigger houses or just less demand for houses in general because more people decide to live in this alternative lifestyle of like a friend-family hybrid thing. Uh and so they think it's the social trend that moves the economy, whereas I think it would be, if anything, that that social trend would arise from housing becoming unaffordable and people having less direct family ties due to other economic variables. And it's the economic variable that pushes the social one. Socioeconomics, they generally believe the reverse. Uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is happiness economics. Happiness economics is the idea that quality of life and emotional well-being of the citizenry should be what is the definition of success for an economy rather than absolute output or tangible standard of living. Uh, example of a country that has really embraced this idea is Bhutan. And the government of Bhutan which is the small country in the Himalayas between India and China, for those who are not familiar with it, uh, is that instead of GDP and GNP, they use GDH and GNH, which stand for gross domestic happiness and gross national happiness. And they just believe that uh, the traditional way of managing an economy and measuring economy rewards selfish behavior and derogation of the environment and increasing the gap between rich or poor and other things that make uh, people unhappy. And so you could, there are arguments, you can have a much lower income and a much simpler standard of living, but due to reprioritizing that spending on experiences or taking care of others, your society will be a much happier one than one that is more wealthy. Um, I think that designing an economic framework around the idea of happiness is a bad idea because even in, in mainstream psychology, happiness is a fleeting feeling and the goal of life isn't really to maximize happiness, but to maximize meaning and fulfillment. 
Um, and But even if you exclude just from the psychological element of this, measuring happiness, which is an ever-moving target that has hedonic adjustments back down to base emotional levels, is not really an effective way to manage policy. And how do you measure? Like, what's the scale of happiness on a one to 10? There's no units of happiness that are standardized in every culture and be quantified. So it's difficult to measure and report this accurately, even if we think it is a just goal. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is the, are the Chicago Boys. For those who are not familiar, the Chicago Boys were a group of economists that subscribed to the Chicago School of Economics who went down to Chile to reform their economy during the dictatorship of Pinochet. Um, yeah, they were originally um, from Latin America. They studied at the University of Chicago, and some of them also went to Harvard and MIT, and they adopted the Freshwater School of Economics, Chicago School, about advocating widespread deregulation and privatization of the economy, a more freer market economy. And they, when they came back from their studies, they moved back to Chile and just gave this framework to Pinochet, who applied it and made Chile one of the most free market countries in the world. And in terms of living standards and GDP per capita, it is the highest in Latin America and the only Latin American country to have a complete visa waiver with the United States. Um, Chile also, because of the efforts of the Chicago boys, has um, some of the lowest government debt to GDP in the world and has the most solvent uh, social security system in the world as well. Um, the Chilean miracle, which was kind of a result of the success of the Chicago Boys um, has been seen as a model for economic development in other emerging market countries, but it really, due to political restraints um, and other non-economic factors, it has been hard to employ this in more democratic governments where they're, the fat that the Chicago Boys cut in the Chilean economy is a livelihood and a voting block that is very hard to destroy. Uh, the last one we're going to talk about is distributionism. And distributionism is an economic theory that I call like a third way concept. It is based on Catholic social teaching uh, for the most part, which Catholic social teaching for those who are not uh, Roman Catholic is the idea that uh, based on the doctrine of human dignity and common good in the Catholic church, that there are certain responsibilities that the individual uh, and the state have in terms of social justice and social organization and wealth redistribution. Um, the Catholic church, like any other community of its size or even a fraction of its size is very ideologically diverse. So how to apply Catholic social teaching is something that has been um, debated since at least the late 19th century. And one of the ideas that came out about this is distributionism, which is the idea that you should not 
have too many um, assets held by too few people. That's if I had to summarize it, that assets need to be widely owned rather than concentrated. Uh, distribution is both anti-laissez-faire capitalism and anti-socialism. Uh, and for opposite reasons, um, in socialism, the state owns all of the means of production. And that has the concentration in one hand. And that's usually a secular government. And the government may not have the best interests of the people and may not factor in that in their own decision making. And also, it's just due to the flaws of human nature, it is dangerous to trust such few decision makers to decide who gets what in an economy. They also they oppose capitalism for the reason that they believe that laissez-faire capitalism is um, exploitative and flawed because in a laissez-faire economy, they expect that the assets and private property will be heavily concentrated among a small elite. And that small elite may not have the best interests of the people and may act in just as an abusive way for their own self-interest like a government would in a socialist system. So the, what's the solution here? If you don't like the concentration of wealth and power among capitalist business owners and social elites, and you don't like um, the concentration of power in the form of the state and government officials, what is the answer? The answer really in a distributionist economy would be just to do whatever it takes to keep private property and the means of production divided into as many hands as possible. So the distributionists are really strong advocates of small business, guilds, member-owned mutual organizations, and very, very strict antitrust laws. Like they would be the most, they're very, they'd be very anti-multinational corporation in the modern sense. They want every industry to be produced by um, a countless amount of small business owners who will compete against each other to make sure it's doing what is in the right interest of the people because they, um, because they have to in order to survive because there's so much competition out there. They really want is free competition to the extreme. And in theory, this sounds really great, actually. The main concern that maybe I would have with this, and I'm not too big of an expert on distributionist economics, is that is every business capable of being run as either a mutual or um, being a collective of small businesses? Can every industry work that way? Like, how do you do things of scale if it's all run by small businesses, whether that's maybe mass production of automobiles or building giant infrastructure projects or a variety of things that you that, or that would require mass scale. But the theory is that you just may create mutuals, kind of like a lot of insurance companies with Northwestern Mutual being the most famous in America who do this credit unions for banks um, and maybe even for like real estate and other major projects. So you splitting them up in like a REIT like structure where it's owned across 
the, the community in and there's no like real dump and you have a cap. Like if there's a stock market in this system, you probably have to have a cap of like no individual owning more than say, I don't know, half a percent of a company and work that way. I don't really think that has really been tried anywhere. The only people who adopted are very fringe political um, parties around the Western world. The most famous advocate of this is G.K. Chesterton. Um, and well, I don't I guess, again, it really hasn't been applied. I mean, it's could, it's neither right wing or left wing, but kind of like Georgism, it's like an interesting concept that maybe should be tried on a small scale to see how well it works. Uh, overall, uh, that is level eight, which is heterodox economics.